Hi, and welcome to Soul Care Podcast. We are so glad you're here with us today. I'm Kimberly Willis. And I am Jinder Reinick. We are joined by our soul care expert, Warren Lamb. Hi, glad to be here. We are here to talk about soul care, what it means, what it looks like, and the hope it can offer. Our desire with this podcast is to offer hope for battling some of the greatest struggles we face as humans and to do so with love, kindness, grace, and prayer. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for this journey into the world of biblical soul care. Let's get started. Heavenly Father, deeply grateful this evening or today or whatever it is when people hear this um, for the opportunity to come together once again and talk about what it means to provide biblical soul care to the troubled and the in trouble, uh, the wounded and the broken uh, and the weary. The opportunity that you're giving us in this session together to talk with a friend and colleague of mine that I have great respect for and I think is a real blessing to the body of Christ and to those of us who are in the trenches uh, is an extra blessing. And I pray that you guide our conversation that not only would we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our time, but it would be a blessing and encouragement to us and every person that hears what we discuss. Help us to really honor your name and reflect the character of Christ in our time together. But let us enjoy our time together as well. Uh, being Christian doesn't mean you have to be dour and sour. So thank you for this opportunity. Please take it and do wonderful things with it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Okay, so... Um... Tonight's episode is going to be on relational trauma, and we have um, a special guest, Dr. Julie Ganshaw. And Dr. Julie Ganshaw is the founder and director of Reigning Grace Biblical Counseling Center based in Liberty, Missouri. She is also the founder and director of Biblical Counseling for Women. Julie earned a PhD in biblical counseling and is certified by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and other certifying organizations. She has been involved in biblical counseling and discipleship for more than 25 years. She is passionate about heart change for life change, a gifted counselor and teacher. Julie specializes in biblical counseling and providing biblical soul care for those suffering from trauma and domestic abuse. She is a frequent retreat and conference speaker. She has authored numerous books, articles, and training materials for biblical counseling and soul care. Through Reigning Grace Institute, she also provides training, education, and certification supervision for women seeking to become certified as biblical counselors. In addition, she has been writing a blog on women's biblical counseling issues since 2008. Dr. Ganshaw serves in overseas in the overseas instruction and counseling as a senior advisor with Fallen Soldiers March and as a certified addictions biblical counselor with the Addiction Connection. She and her husband, Larry, have been married for 32 years, have three sons and daughter-in-laws and three beautiful grandchildren. Welcome, Julie. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Thanks the so much for having me. Quite the extensive and impressive bio and background. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, um, it's it truly is all the Lord's doing because I'm really just a housewife. Now, wait a minute. She says that, but Julie is considered a thought leader in the biblical counseling world. She really is. So for her to be, be willing to do this is a, a, really an honor and blessing for me. And I like her and her husband, Larry, a lot, too. So <laughs> we love you guys. <laughs> Certainly gives a new definition to housewives. So, <laughs> well, you know, yes, indeed. Well, yes, we're we're excited to have you as well, and to learn more um, about your specialties and the areas you focus in. And you know, this topic in particular tonight was is relational trauma. And typically when we start our episodes, we like to spend time understanding the clinical definition of the topic that we're covering and then how that dovetails into, or differs, I should, should say, from the biblical perspective as well. So maybe we should just start with kind of a broad understanding for everyone who's listening of what we mean by relational trauma from a clinical perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, first understand that the word trauma itself is a word that comes from Greek antiquity. And the meaning that the word was given at the time include things like being severely hurt, 
sustaining physical wounds. Um, a lot of it is related to like military defeat and you know military wounds and so on. Also what they would call psychic wounds or wounds of the psyche. Um, I always like to present a, a dictionary definition of a word when, um, when I'm asked for you know, a definition. And so Webster's defines trauma as a disordered psychic or behavioral state that results from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury or an emotional upset. And when we think of trauma um, with relation to something like an emotional upset, uh, it sounds like a very minimalistic understanding of the word. But really when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about something that is resulting from something. And in this case, it's resulting from an exposure to an incident or to a series of events that are disturbing emotionally or perhaps life-threatening. And these events have lasting adverse effects on how the person functions. Um, it affects their, their mental, their physical, their social, emotional, and their spiritual well-being. Now, um, the DSMTR has its own definition of traumatic events, and it includes more descriptors because the DSM is an excellent catalog, catalog of descript describing various behaviors. So the psychological view of something like uh, post-traumatic distress or what they call post-traumatic stress disorder or trauma, it is um, something that involves an actual or threatened death, a serious injury or a sexual violence. So when they're looking at trauma, they're not only describing what it is, but also what the person who's experienced the event or events um, how they act, how they may feel, what they display. So I don't know if you were looking for more than that on the <laughs> definition or if you thought that was pretty good to start out with. It is indeed. I think it's, Warren, I know you have something to say, but I think it's really interesting the um, history of the root of the word or the definition of the word and how that word has really deep ties in what we would normalize as as deep trauma, military trauma, or, you know, what that can carry. But as it manifests in this definition today, you could see the same level in your day-to-day, -day, depending on how oppressive or abusive that situation may be. So that's kind of an interesting um, reality, I think, of how intense the, the trauma can feel for someone from a day-to-day -day consideration versus a military experience. Right. I was going to say, Julie, would you talk a little bit about how subjective trauma experiences? Yeah, um, trauma is an incredibly, um, you know, it's a construct. Okay, it is a, it's like picture it like a basket or a bucket that we would call trauma, and into that basket or bucket, we just throw all kinds of things, and all of these things are subjective. They are different from one person to the next. And because there is no um, true biology that is involved in trauma, right? What, what it, you're hearing about is how a thing affects me, how it affects me emotionally. And the very interesting thing as I'm doing the research for the trauma book is um, comparing how what we here in the United States consider something to be trauma, someone in a third world country that is under constant threat of war and particularly like in the African countries where the, there's the tribal wars that are going on all the time or in the Middle East where the tribal wars are going on, how what we consider truly traumatizing is for them just another day. And there is no real, um, you know, distressful component to it for them because it's a way of life. Mm -hmm. So these things are very subjective. And I think that another thing that kind of poisons the well, if I can use that phrase, is that our culture is constantly telling us that this is traumatizing and this is traumatizing and that is traumatizing and oh you have this disorder or that disorder as a result of what you've experienced 
You know, I mean, any mass shooting event or any school event, those things are horrific and they are tragic. But the first thing that happens is all of the trauma specialists are flocking there to attempt to help the people that have experienced the event. Mm-hmm. And does that I, feel like a misstep? Well, I think it is a misstep because I think in some cases we are imposing trauma on people who would otherwise not say that they're traumatized. Yeah, we don't, they're not being given an opportunity for their own resiliency factors to come into play and for them to to work through and process through. To, to have someone available if they want to talk, that's how they're going to work through it is to talk about it. But to force that, it can very much be traumatizing for people. The word you used is interesting because I had written that down, the resiliency. Like it's it's really, if you're, how resilient you are can help dictate how much trauma you can endure. Very much does. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like the African cultures where perhaps with all the civil disobedience, they can withstand more than what is normalized trauma. Their normalized trauma, I should say, yeah. their resiliency is so high that it doesn't feel the same as the trauma that we feel here because we're not as resilient. Right. And a couple of other points on this. One of the other things that is happening in the secular world in the in the understanding of trauma is something we call bracket creep. Mm-hmm. And this is the ever expanding understanding of what something is. Initially, a diagnosis of PTSD was only given to a person who had actually experienced the trauma, okay? They were the one that was shot or stabbed. They were the one who was sexually assaulted. But with bracket creep, what is happening is the the categories are getting broader and wider. And currently, in, in... to be diagnosed with PTSD, you only have to know someone who experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Just you knowing that some other person was in a car accident, for example, you can be labeled with PTSD. Right. And, and I mean, it, it, for one, it just completely waters down any understanding of what real um, experiential trauma is. And it makes the the identifier meaningless. Yeah, Julie, would you agree that a lot of times what people are calling traumatic is a a crisis? That just simply a crisis that doesn't necessarily have to develop into a a trauma effect. Mm -hmm. Or would you even say some of it is life? (laughs) Well, Well, yeah, I I would, honestly. I mean... You know, I think that there there is a there is a difference between, you know, I was in a car accident, okay, I I got rear-ended or I rear-ended somebody else versus I was run over by a semi-truck and almost died. Right. Okay. But we tend to lump all of those things together, mm-hmm. right? And I literally was run over by a semi-truck in my car and almost died, right? Um, and I wouldn't say that I experienced trauma from that event. Now, as a result, I don't like to drive next to semi trucks. I don't like to be next to them on the freeway or on the road because I'm cautious, right? I, I have a lack of trust, but I, even right after it happened, I was, you know, I was probably a little bit freaked out because who wouldn't be right. right. And I just was thanking God that I wasn't dead. Now, something else that we're experiencing in our culture is we are experiencing, thanks to the 24-hour news cycle, social media, all of these platforms, and cameras on virtually every street corner in major cities, we are being desensitized to things that 10 years ago would have horrified us, right? It It is so regular now to see some horrible crime video from a major city of some person getting body slammed or stomped on or, you know, massive hordes of of people beating the snot out of an individual, right? And in the past, we used to just, we would look away from those things like, this is, I I can't watch this, I can't watch this. 
you know, and we have become really desensitized to a lot of that stuff now. And so I think we can draw some comparisons in, in some minute, deep, minute ways to what I said earlier about people in other nations where there's tribal wars and stuff where they see these things going on all the time, that they don't affect us the way that they would have once affected us. I'm not sure that's a good thing, right? So let me ask, so I'm thinking about what you're saying. So that would... As I follow the logic of that, if as that being the case, the increase in people saying, oh, I, it was trauma. And, but it's like if things if things were still the way they were, that w- that that would be legitimate. But mm-hmm. things are not the way they were. So we're actually it sounds like people are trying to overlay on today what used to be true in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it doesn't logically hold together. I agree. Yeah, I agree with you. And, yeah. and just kind of as a side note, when people talk to me about being triggered, what I, what I tell them is that what that really is, is a sinful provocation. Yeah. And that goes back to this kind of um, narcissistic type of culture where if it's uncomfortable for me, you need to be aware and change what you're doing so that I'm not triggered and I'm more comfortable. You need to adapt to me. So it, it kind of is a full culture, uh, full circle there. And I think Julie would agree. There is some validity to that idea. When you have somebody that's a significant trauma survivor, you do want to handle them and, and deal with them in a gentle caring way because there is a fragility to them for a time yes yes well and a couple questions i have just from that that whole um this bracket creep can cause someone who by sheer association of trauma is now identified as a trauma survivor why would the world do that why would some why would you know someone want to put a label on someone who's fits into that bracket if you will Well, I think you're asking me in one way to assign motives for the reason that people would do that. And I don't know that I really can tell you the reason that they would do that. I can make some um, assumptions. Okay. One is that, that we are living in a time where, because, um, because culturally God has been edited out of everything and everything is looked at through the materialist lens, you know, the biopsychosocial bio perspective where, you know, there, there is no God in our culture anymore. And so we can't say that a person has a spiritual problem. We have to make everything about the material man. So we have to give it a, a pseudo medical diagnosis from the DSM and, you know, there's money involved in that, right? Because the DSM is directly connected to the ICD, whatever number they're on now, 15 or 13 or whatever. And that is how you bill insurance, right? And I think also we have become a nation of victims. Everybody is a victim of something. And it's just, it's an unfortunate byproduct of the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, it is you're you're right. And that's fair to say that it's hard to assign motives to everyone who does assign these labels. Um mm-hmm. there is a lot to suggest that it's exactly what you're saying, and that if they can assign it a label, there's no way to possibly help or medicate or heal, and they need to be able to bill and get there, you know, and, and again, we don't want to assume that's everyone, you know, some right. there are some desires to help and sure. because of how they've been trained, that's where they would normally categorize the people, but you're right. The motives do become in question. It's like the tide going in and out and every, every incoming yeah. of the tide brings a new, a new thing. I, you know, yeah. I, I honestly, yeah. it's, it's like the malady of the week. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 And so our society with not thinking through, thinking it through, not saying, well, okay, does this really make sense? People just get caught up because it takes a lot of effort to sit down and it takes time. And we've got other more important things to do. I mean, I got alerts on my phone. I got to pay attention to. 
Well, and I think there's a desire for a labeling to put things in a box because then you don't have to acknowledge the sin nature. Or just as you said, when we remove God, we remove this spiritual, um, sinful reality that we all carry. And if we can just say, oh, no, I'm just a trauma survivor. Oh, no, you're mm-hmm. just triggering me. Then yeah. it, there's so much that we don't we don't have to be accountable to. Right. And we can right. put a label and then we can have a justification for our behavior. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Julie, you and I both work with a wide, broad spectrum of trauma survivors. And would you agree that when we're dealing with somebody who's been been in through a traumatic situation that involves violence, like, uh, you know, um, well, like combat, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That the, the, the trauma that a person is going to experience in that kind of a context is going to have some significant differences than someone who's been been th- experienced long term relational abuse, relational trauma. Yeah, um, I think you know, in the secular world, they would call that complex trauma, right? right. Where you where you have been right. um, dealing with repeated events that have been injurious, right? right. Versus you know an isolated event or two events um, of um, you know, dealing with some kind of an injurious behavior. And I, I do think that the longer that you're exposed to a, a particular kind of violence or, you know, aberrant behavior, um, uh, I think that there, there is um, a, a greater tendency on the part of the person that's receiving that behavior um, to question God more to struggle more with the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the existence of God. And I think it's a, it can be a longer road back, but a lot of that has to do with how that person is approached from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another thing while you're, you know, that I find you probably do too, is that another factor that seems almost is when a person who's been been victimized has come to believe that they're responsible for what the other person did to them. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, that's a significant obstacle for them even being able to feel like they can, they can approach God, receive what God has for them. Mm-hmm. A lot of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So another question that came to mind as you were talking about the DS, um, desensitization of our culture, how would that equate to more trauma or our claims of trauma if we're actually exposed to more? And, and you would think that that would mean that we're um, resilient to more. So that seems like it would be the converse to me, right? If I'm exposed to more and I can see car wrecks on my phone at any time and, and beat people beating up, then I would think when I actually experience things today you would think i would be more resilient why do you think we're less resilient and we now have more people experiencing trauma well i think it's because our culture tells us that's what we're experiencing Mm. i i really do think that culturally the whole setup for all of us now is we're somebody's victim right Everybody is a victim, right? You, you know, some of the research that I was doing for the trauma book, um, going back to the whole idea of bracket creep, is that you can literally be diagnosed with PTSD if you are walking down the street and you see a T-shirt that someone else is wearing that offends you. You can you can get a PTSD diagnosis with that. So it's, yeah. it's like we're just oh sorry, Kimberly. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I've been wanting to ask this question. So as we're talking about, you know, the victimization since I since things being desensitized, I also want our readers that are listening, people who have actually, I also think there's a certain, which you guys could speak to, a minimization going on. There are people who are real trauma survivors yeah. who have gone through traumatic childhoods, who are now adults who don't know how to get help. And I think we, I think it would be important to speak to that and to have a sensitivity and a, and a heart towards that. Yeah. And I think this is where, when we start looking at what trauma is from a biblical 
um, perspective, right? To, to be traumatized is to be wounded. It's to experience ongoing suffering after you experience or see something that is truly horrible, right? It's suffering that stays with you after the event that you experienced is over. Yeah. And, and that suffering, it can be emotional, right? Where you are um, feeling fearful or frightened or horrified or, I don't know, sad or devastated, right? And the suffering can also be memorable in mm. that you replay the events over and over in your mind and your heart. You, you, um, you wouldn't define it this way as the, the person who's experiencing it, but you're sort of meditating on the experience, mm. right? You really are saturating it. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, God is, God has created us yeah. so well. He's created us to be able to have memories. And so some of the things that we experience, they, they come back into our thinking really unbidden. Like, you know, I don't sit around and think about that semi truck rolling over the back of my car, but there are just times when I'm going about my daily life and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was bad. That was scary. I could have died. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and when that kind of thing happens, we, we re-experience some of the same feelings and some of the same emotions that we had when that event took place. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to some physical complications, right? Because we are embodied souls. So what affects us in the inner man, like our thoughts, beliefs, and desires, um, you know, are all, these are all aspects of what the Bible calls the heart. They all, this also impacts our physical being. We can't separate the material from the immaterial. Yeah. Yeah. There's another part of this too, I think, is that if everybody has been traumatized, mm-hmm. then almost nobody has. Right. It's become so diluted. And what you probably experienced this too, when you sit down across from somebody, a lot of times, a person will look at what they've experienced, horrible things, and it became so normalized for them that yeah. they think that what other people have experienced is worse than what they did. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And so they wouldn't even consider it as traumatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we see that a lot with domestic abuse, Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. where the, you know, the, the wife, in my case, because that's who I help, they just don't even recognize that what this is, is abuse. It's that on both spectrums because of the normalization of something, but then also to your point, Kimberly, if you delude the, the magnitude of trauma, because you've now to your point have said, everyone is a trauma survivor in some capacity, then the people that are truly wounded Mm -hmm. don't understand that they're truly wounded to get the help or they just feel again, like maybe, Oh, it's, I've I've normalized my pain. Everyone's wounded. Everyone has to get through stuff. I need to just get through this. You know, everyone has stuff to deal with. The mind is no worse than someone else's, but sometimes there is. is. Yeah. Sometimes it is. So I think we've kind of unpackaged the clinical definition, a more biblical definition. And you talked a little bit about some of the, um, the people that you would be counseling, but we're curious, when does someone reach you and your team or your group or the organizations that you work with? Where have they, what has usually been their path and what are, are they usually coming to you saying, hey, I'm dealing with relational trauma. I'd like to work through this. Or what does that look like? No. Well, you know, how someone finds me, I, I guess at this point, they've either heard something I've taught at a conference or something, or it's word of mouth. And, you know, why do they find me? Um, I think the reason they, they, anyone goes to a biblical counselor is because they're looking for real help and real hope, and they haven't found it in the psychological approach. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was just going to say, it's kind of been a pattern that it's, people have tried so many other things that we yes. end up being the last. Exactly. Stop. Yeah, yeah, we are the last chance motel for many <laughs> people. And many times they, you know, they have undergone all kinds of psychological treatment and they come with their, their secular package of diagnoses and terminology. And the, the approaches that they've already been through have convinced them that they're somehow broken. 
and that they're going to struggle for the rest of their lives with the terrible physical and emotional struggles of some form of post-traumatic distress. And, you know, I know that there are some um, integrated counselors and some even uh, secular counselors that will embrace a, a form of spirituality, mm-hmm. but really their goal is more to have the essence of morality without deity, right? So there's no focus there on what the Bible teaches about how a person responds to the distress that would follow trauma. So, you know, they come, like we said, we're the last chance motel and you know, they've already tried talk therapy and psychoactive medications and they're still struggling and they're like, well, let's just give God a shot, you know, so they they come just really hopeless. And many times they'll say, is there anything you can do to help me? Or they don't even believe it. They're just here because it's just one more thing. And I can say I've tried it all. Yeah, yeah. So that's so in two, a couple of things that have just jumped off the page. I'm a note taker. So I'm just trying to capture everything that you're saying. Cause it's also, mm-hmm. it, it's also important. Um, but that, that is so the essence of morality without deity. I mean, that is that pretty, that summarizes a lot of our world's problems right now, right? We're yes. searching for that. Um, but we don't want to admit what we really need. Um, that, I think that was just a pretty powerful statement. I, I just, I think that was really a good summary of, of the state that we're in and typically the state of where we have found a lot of counselors reaching the world of biblical counselees reaching the world of biblical counseling is a last resort. Like you said, they've been searching for morality, but they haven't used God. And then they're like, okay, finally, you know, I guess I'll give God a shot because <laughs> I haven't yet. Um, and they have typically used, you know, we talked about a lot of clinical definition of, of relational trauma and how that gets diagnosed. Now, how would, how would that treatment in a typical setting differ from how you guys would work through someone who reached you? So um, the, the approach that you would find in a, uh, in a worldly counseling paradigm falls under the um, category of what's called trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care doesn't treat specific symptoms or syndromes, but really what it is is more of an organizational structure and it's a treatment framework. And what they use under trauma-informed care are uh, what are called evidence-based treatment options. So you might hear a lot about evidence-based counseling. And what that what most of those fall under is the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, right? And the goal of these things of, of this kind of counseling is it, it does not have a God orientation. It is very um, person centered and it's really geared toward helping them gain a sense of control over their life and um, through like, you know, the cognitive therapy to help them change their behaviors and their feelings by, you know, changing how they understand the experiences that they've had. Um, it helps them recognize various thinking patterns, or they call them cognition, cognitive patterns that are keeping them stuck in the trauma. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they do other kinds of things like exposure therapy, um, and the current favorite, of course, is EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is, um, as our friend Daniel says, it's nothing more than mesmerism, which I just absolutely love, you know. Um, and if you ever study what EMDR is, it, it is it is eye movement there to this uh, sham of a treatment. And in some cases, uh, for a person to even undergo EMDR therapy, there has to be trauma involved. So trauma therapists are encouraging people to come up with a trauma so that they can have some form of, or they can have an EMDR course of treatment. Yeah, well, Julie, I, I know you and I both have had to do some cleanup after that. Or even people that we've started with helping, all of a sudden they're looking for that, their, that yeah. That microwave put you know, oh, I need to do this. And yes. then they come back and they're 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 a mess. Yes, they yeah. are. Well, yeah. and hence 
hence why we're using trauma as offensive as a t-shirt that we see walking down the street because we need to create the trauma to be able to create the the emdr you know solution or see one of the like our approach we're not going to go digging for anything we allow the holy spirit to bring things to the forefront that we address under his guidance and leadership we don't dig for anything right we do exactly the opposite Yes. And the, the deeper they can dig and the worse they can find, the better. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand and they take a lot of offense at this. When you look at Deuteronomy 18 and you look at the forbidden spiritual practices, one of those forbidden practices is enchantments. Yes. Okay. Enchantment is the use of human voice, music, or movement to gain psychic control of another. EMDR uses movement and human voice and sometimes music. It's forbidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's is a form of witchcraft. It is absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, and people and then, think this is going to be helpful. Right, and then well, we can add pharmacia in there as well, right? Yeah. Which is the whole realm of psychoactive, psychotropic, neuroleptic medications. Um, and and when you put all of these things together in a person who is struggling to make sense of an event or a group of events that have happened to them. It becomes this steaming cauldron of hot mess, right? And hence why the person really doesn't experience help and why our approach is so radically different. And, you know, I think we take so much criticism and so much garbage from the, you know, the evidence-based counselors out there who insist that we're not, we're not focusing on the body. We're, you know, we're only trying to focus on the spiritual and that's just so nonsensical, right? I mean, I've been doing biblical counseling for almost 30 years at this point, right? And you, I think a little longer than me, because you're just a bit older than me, just a little bit, just a little bit. And, um, you know, our approach has always been to make sure the counseling doesn't have any medical problems that could be the genesis of their struggles or be contributing to their struggles. We want to rule out any medical or biological causes, right? So we refer them for a general physical, including blood work, just to make sure we're not dealing with some sort of endocrine disorder or something that might require, you know, a more advanced, um, you know, medical testing or whatever. And then once we know that those things are not a component, then we know that because we are both material and immaterial, what what isn't primarily material or physical, the only other option is the inner man, the spiritual aspect of who we are. And that is where we do our work. Right. And even if there turns out to be some kind of a physical problem with the person, there's always an emotional or spiritual inner man reaction to that. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, there's another thing. And you and I have talked about this in the past. One of the places where we really differ from purely secular approach or even what we call an integrationist approach Mm -hmm. is we take a look at. Yeah, we can understand how these things have impacted the person physically. Yep. Right? But those are effect. Those are not causal. Right. It's not right. And that's where we differ. Yeah. We, because, and I mean, even, even people who are some leaders in, in the area of counseling and, and ministry that we're involved in will have a tendency to say, well, you've got this physical component that is causing this. No, no. This physical component has been a yeah. is the effect of what's going on with the inner man, with the non-material part of this person. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I liken it to even going to the doctor for an issue. If the doctor isn't looking at the root cause and we're trying to treat it in a very topical approach, you end up with the same thing. It's going to resurface. You're really just treating the outcrop of the root cause. We really have to get to the root. And, and yeah. to your point, um, um, it, it really is important to have the full picture of the person. And, and yes, yeah, some things are medically driven and there's an emotional response. Some things have an emotional drive and it's creating that it. we have to know the full, right. the full picture. Yeah. And we are discredited in the world of biblical counseling as a little bit too, too spiritual and not scientific and not it's, and it's really unfortunate because it's just, it's really not the case. 
Well, we have, we do we do have to admit though there are a lot of people in our our field who um, haven't done the homework yeah. to learn about the the legitimate physiological uh, impact of what a person ex- is experienced immaterially. Yeah. And so be- and because of that, it they really aren't able to help. They're not really able to address it. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, hey, there's a balance point here, but understanding that um, the 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 immaterial part of us is what drives this bus, not yep. the material. Yeah. Right. It's like the and- word picture. The word picture I use is if you're listening to the orchestra play Grieg's Concerto in this beautiful composition, and all of a sudden three blind mice starts coming out of the <laughs> piano. Right. They're going to go run over and take the piano part to figure out what's wrong. And we're going to walk over to the pianist and go, hey, what's up? Because Mm -hmm. even though the piano may be out of tune, the piano is not going to decide what to play, what to play. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very true. Um, You know, it's like one of the illustrations that I frequently use is, you know, how when a person is experiencing fear and worry in the inner man about something they wind up going to the doctor for what is medically described as anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. The physical effects in the outer man of the inner man's fear and worry. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so when we're dealing with somebody that has been traumatized and they're coming to us with, you know, sleeplessness and anxiety and anger and um, just this, this whole basket full of symptoms, right? We could focus on just the fruit, which is what they're coming to us with. Or like you said, we could go down to the root, right? We could go down to the heart of the problem, which is where that that's where we do our work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is where we do our work. Yeah. So where do you start? Where, where do we start then? When somebody well, comes Well, I refer them for a medical exam. And then once that medical exam comes back clean, okay, if there is no medical or biological cause, you know, it depends on, you know, like if the trauma is the result of something like physical abuse, um, or what's called emotional abuse, or a child who has been enculturated by their parents or other people in their home just to think of themselves as somebody who doesn't measure up or is a loser or a failure, right? Those are the kids that typically go on to be victimized again as adults. So we need to, we need to look at what is it they believe to be true? Who do they, who are they, right? And if they're, if they're unregenerate, if they're unbelievers, then this is obviously fertile ground for the gospel. And we, we want to show them that Jesus and, and a relationship with him is the beginning of this healing journey, right? That they've already tried everything without him. Now, you know, let, let us turn our, ourselves over to God that he may, in his kindness, help us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once a person is regenerate and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then we can start helping them see who they are. They're imago Dei. They're, they're um, someone created in the image and the likeness of God, as opposed to, to what they have been told or believed their whole lives, mm-hmm. right? Their soul has been affected by the lies and the distortions about who they are, because rarely do people who victimize other people focus on what they did, they, they aim their attacks on who they are. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're, you're a whore. You're, you know, you're no good. You're whatever. And so those things become their identity. Yeah. So we want them to start to view themselves through the lens of scripture and accept what is true about them, according to the unchangeable standard of the word of God, rather than their self-evaluation or than rather than someone else's evaluation of them. Goes back to what you were talking about before with those differences of how the long-term repetitive trauma can be so toxic because you're left with these thoughts that just circle through your head replaying over and over. And that can do so much damage over 
tens of years or, or a year, even, you know, you're not to say that there's less, there's not to say that there's less significance with physical trauma that happens, right? It does end typically. Yes. And you can go through recovery. If you have years of emotional, mental trauma, it's with you because it's in your mind wherever you go. And it plays every time you try to do something and then you fail and you feel like a failure and then the the voices come all over again. So it is this haunting, repetitive messaging. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, we start with, um, we want the, the person to understand how in Jesus Christ, they are a new creation right? Any man is in Christ. He is a new creation. And we want to, to help them understand that because they are a new creation, they can become more like Christ in the process of sanctification and spiritual transformation. And this again, goes back to who am I? Their identity in Christ is so crucial to help them overcome whatever it is that they have endured. Um, so we spend lots of time with our counselees, helping them to embrace this new identity, learning what does the Bible say is true about them. You know, we want them to understand, for example, uh, Psalm 8, you know, talks about, you know, being crowned with glory and majesty, right? Um, we want them to see how when God created humans, how he was intentional by, you know, breathing into us the breath of life and us becoming, you know, living beings. Um, We want to help them to see that the the fearful heart that has developed, that oftentimes that has an identity that is rooted in lies. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question. So um, let's say you have someone who comes to you who God has been misrepresented God has been used that maybe they grew up where it was you, where his word and Bible verses were used to terrorize and to correct. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea of like, okay, now I've got to have my, they're, they're turned off by that. They don't trust that. So how would you help someone if they're coming with here? They have these different layers of abuse now, along with the spiritual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And when a person has experienced what we call spiritual abuse, um, we, it just all takes much longer, right? Because not only do we have to undo all of the other lies that they believe, but now we also have to undo the lies that they believe about God, mm-hmm. right? We have to teach them the, the, the biblical perspective on who God is versus who and how God has been portrayed. And, you know, ultimately, it's going to be up to every individual as to do they want to believe this or not, right? Right. We can present the truth and we can show them the love and the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the faithfulness and the gentleness of God. But if a person does not choose to believe it, we can't impose that on them, right? I think, Julie, you you hit on something right there that you're talking about authentic biblical soul care, right. caring, really caring for the individual, the love, the grace and the mercy, letting them actually experiencing that maybe, you know, being a incarnating Christ, the living Christ to them being yeah. what we call ambassadors, really what that really means. Yeah. Um, as a counterbalance to what they, they, because their exposure to Christians isn't that. Right. It's been and harsh. So the relationship is going to be a key factor, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the beautiful things about what we do about mm-hmm. soul care is that we are not involved in a sterile environment. We are not prohibited from entering into relationships with the people that we serve. We endeavor to develop relationships with them. Right. We're, we're not white coats up here and they're just down here. Right. I mean, we make it a point to tell every counselee that we're we are traveling the same road of sanctification. Maybe in some areas of life, I might be a few steps ahead of you. And I'm sure in other areas of life, you're a few steps ahead of me. But what we're going to do is we're just going to lock arms and we're going to walk side by side through what is happening and has happened in your life. 
And together, we're going to discover what God has for you. And I just, I, I love that about providing soul care and, and about, you know, biblical counseling, which is really discipleship. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, we use the phrase biblical counseling because we know that it appeals to the world, right? And we want to bring people in from the world, yeah. right? So it's not that we're being deceptive because we are biblical and we are providing counsel, but really we're providing soul care in a discipleship relationship. Yeah. And I- the factory is the one thing, one of the most remarkable differences between the world of psychology, yep. psychiatry, and what we do. Yep. And yeah, I would, know that. yeah. And I would venture to guess as well that that is not an overnight process. If someone has had a lot of wounding by the word, by the church, or by this, this vision that they have of who God is, mm-hmm. we are bringing a completely different uh, narrative and script to the table. And that takes a little bit of time for them to not only build our trust in the relationship or their trust in the relationship with us, but also for them to understand this new identity. So it's not, I mean, I, I would assume that it's not an overnight process. It sometimes will take a long time to just get that base foundation before some of the other heart healing can actually happen. Yeah. Warren, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Um, I've had counseling relationships where it it was so one-sided for the longest period of time where my counseling would just sit there, just stone-faced, wide-eyed and, and have no response. So I'm, you know, it's like you're carrying on this monologue with someone that will. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and so in some of these cases, because they're, they're, the level of um, what they've experienced has been just so uh, grievous to them, they can't speak, but they can write, yeah. right? right? They can or write draw. or draw, or they can send you music that relates to what they have experienced. And I mean, I've had, I've had women tell me, you know, I can't believe you stuck with me through all those weeks when I wouldn't even open my mouth, when I I just couldn't open my mouth. And when you read all the horrible things that I wrote down that I sent to you and you never criticized me and you never chastised me, right? Because we have to start somewhere. I mean, at some point, if you're sending me things that are full of, you know, massive amounts of expletives. Okay. At some point we're, we're going to discuss that, but okay. It, that's not going to be my first goal. My first goal is I want to interact with you. And I want you to know that I am a safe person for you to interact with. Yeah. That being willing to walk alongside and just be present because they've, what they've experienced has occurred in relationship. Mm-hmm. Most of the time. Right. Well, we're, yeah. when we're talking about abuse and neglect and all that stuff, that's yeah. right. That's occurred in relationship. Healing is going to come in relationship, but they've learned to distrust relationship. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, um, it does require a lot of patience. And if, how many times if you had somebody um, like try to fire you or try to quit, right? And you say, well, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Um, Well, many, sometimes what will happen is they'll just stop coming for a while. Mm -hmm. They just disappear. Mm -hmm. And usually when it's when we're getting a little bit too close to something that they're not ready to deal with yet. And um, I don't close them out. I leave them open. I, you know, I leave their case, their file open and um, you know, I'll continue to pray for them. And then after, I don't know, weeks might go by and I'll just drop them a little email and I'll say, Hey, I just want you to know, I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. And whenever you're ready to come back, then, you know, we can resume. And if you're not ready to come back, that's okay too. Just know that someone cares for you and, um, and, and believes that God has better for you than what you've experienced in the past. Yeah. Yeah. 
And sometimes they'll return after months and they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And, and they're expecting me to be mad, you know, and, and I'm not mad. I'm just glad they've come back. I'm glad that they're ready to resume the journey. And that for the counselor, that's a really important thing to remember. This is, this is a marathon. Okay. You are in a marathon relationship with this person. When I was first trained in biblical counseling, we were told six to eight sessions and out. And yep. oh, oh yeah. And I remember, I just, I remember. There is no way. There is no way. And thankfully, we're not trained. People aren't trained that way anymore. But um, you know, six to eight sessions, and you're still gathering data on some of these people. It's all about when they're ready to yep. trust, right? And ready to yes. even. Sometimes you're just. As much as you think you want the help, you're not always ready for it. And, and we want to be there and meet you for whenever you are. Whenever you're ready. Exactly. Yes. And, and Julie, that open invitation that you described, I think, is, is a critical piece. Yes. Not just to, to have in place, but that differentiates us from the way the world. So I, what's that? I, I, can't really... I was just going to say, ending with that, I think that's a beautiful way to tie up this episode. Um, knowing that, you know, we're reaching hearts and if you're not ready, there's an, always an open-ended invitation and that soul care, right? And not like what you said, Julie, not chastising or criticizing, having that understanding, having that mercy, having that kindness, back to what Warren said of being these ambassadors of Christ, and coming along and having the discipleship. Mm-hmm. We're not a, we're not a magic pill. You know, you're not going to all of a sudden come and, and everything is fixed. We, it's really that soul searching. It's that soul healing. And most of that is between you and God. And you know, right. we help edify. We bring truth. We bring scripture. We bring clarity in, in a state of chaos for you mentally and emotionally, but you definitely end up working it out with God. Absolutely. That's that's the healing. Amen. Well said. Well said. We like to end all of these with just some last words of hope. So if you're listening, if someone is listening to this today and is going through or in the middle of trauma, um, what would be some words of hope that you would want to leave with them tonight? Well, that there is hope. First of all, you don't have to um, exist in a state of trauma, um, that there is help, there is healing, and there is most of all hope. And it's found in the gospel. It's found in the word of God. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that indwells every person who comes humbly and professes a need for a saving relationship with Jesus. That is where real healing and hope begins. There is, there is hope and healing and none other. Haley, I want to thank you for uh, being here. I'm, I always enjoy have, hearing you talk about these things because um, even though you and I both work in the, minister in the same areas a lot, mm-hmm. uh, you have a perspective and you're impacted by the counseling relationships that you're a part of differently than I am. So it's it's always a learning and growing experience for me as well. So, um, and I enjoy your company. Wow, it's 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 been a real pleasure to be here with you um, and to get to know the the two of you, uh, ladies Jinda and Kimberly and Warren. It's always just a gas to hang out with you. You're one of my favorite people, and um, we, by God's grace, we do good work together. Right? Yeah. And. Uh, yeah. I think, I think we complement each other well. So yeah. thank you for this opportunity to be here. I can definitely see the styles uh, being okay. different, but how well that would complement <laughs> for sure. And it was, a, it was an honor. Um, well, you know, it, it truly is God. It really is. It, it is the Lord that has enabled all of, of what you read at the beginning to come to pass. But I'm Larry's wife and mom of three and grandma to three. The, those are my most cherished roles after a daughter of the king. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Great. So 
Thank you for listening to the Soul Care Podcast. We pray this has been a blessing and an encouragement for you. We want to leave you with four thoughts to reflect on. Is your identity in Christ or something else? How well do you understand the true nature and character of God? How much confidence do you have in who God is? And how does all of this impact what you are struggling with today? If you desire to learn more, check out the show notes for more resources and information. And please don't forget, you matter to God.